Hello and welcome Hacker Public Radio listeners to another Phoenix's Student Hacker's Guide to Linux. My name's Aaron Finnan, but as usual you guys can call me Phoenix. Well, believe it or not guys, this is my first episode of Phoenix Student Hacker's Guide. Uh, this year I had some time off before New Year um, for the birth of my daughter. Um, so it's good to get back into the throw of things uh, and... I have some good news. I recently had a conversation with a pen tester called Chris Riley, um, and I thought I'd let you guys hear it. Um, I'll see you all again soon. Well, hello, Hacker Public Radio listeners. Uh, it's Saturday afternoon, and I'm having a quick chat uh, with Chris. Um, Chris, could you introduce yourself for the HBR listeners? Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, my name's Chris. Um, I'm a penetration tester, ethical hacker, whatever whatever you choose as your title of choice. I work for a, uh, a large European bank in Austria, um, but I come from England, so what else is there to say? Um, I work full-time as a penetration tester. Um, my, my kind of background is network security and uh, network management. I'm kind of moving more into web application testing now, as that seems to be the, the way forward. So, I mean, how did you get into it, Chris? It's one of those things that quite a lot of people just fall into it, and it's the same with me. I mean, I spent years working as a server tech server technician um and you know people would were, were just doing crazy crazy stuff and i was always saying well why are you doing this i mean this is a test box but why aren't we patching it um people were just saying well it's a test box we don't need to patch it and that would just drive me crazy it wasn't until i moved to to our office in germany that i really started to work with kind of network intrusion detection working with snort doing vulnerability scanning with with nessus and working on uh, wsus the the windows um, patching software. Did some work with antivirus as well, working with Trend and um, F-Secure. And I really wanted to move that forward because it was only part of my job and it was the, the real part that interested me. It's the bit that I really wanted to go forward with and make a career of. Um, my company at the time weren't really able or, or happy for me to move more into security. So I took the step of leaving my job in Germany, moving to Austria to live with my girlfriend and just kind of learning off my own back, reading as many books as I could get, doing as many courses as I could find. Um, I actually spent six weeks in India taking some Microsoft exams. I've been using Microsoft Windows 2000, 2003, XP for years, but I never actually managed to take the exams. So I took six months to read all the books, go through it all again, and then went to India, um, saw a lot of the nice sites, took some exams, because it's nice and cheap to take exams over there. And I squeezed in a couple of... Um, security related exams, the CompTIA Security Plus, which is kind of a basic security qualification and it's the best way to describe it, and the EC Council Certified Ethical Hacker, which I have mixed opinions on. Um, I'm not sure if it was just the, the teacher or the books or just everything about the exam itself, but um, halfway through the course I just realized that they had absolutely nothing at all to teach me. It was like 75% of it was just old tools that no one would use anymore. Basic yeah, stuff. I, yeah. I, I've I've heard mixed views on that, on, on the, the CH as well. Um, yeah. And so it's, you know, a, a lot of people have mixed views on it. Some people think that it's the best thing since sliced bread. Some people think that it's uh, a little bit dated. Um, yeah, I must admit that the, the version I took, version five, and they're on version six now. The version five was was like tools from you know, early two thousand, and this was in two thousand and seven. I was taking the course, I think, and it, it just annoyed me so much that we're using tools on, under Linux 
and you just couldn't even find them on the internet anymore. I don't know where they found some of these tools. Uh, they, they always went back to this, the same stuff. They didn't teach you things like Nmap or Nessus or anything like that. They, they used odd Windows um, port scanning tools like Angry IP, um, which they just went over three or four times during the course. It, was, it just seemed to be very repetitive, far too much crammed into a five-day course and very little of it was was useful and there was also no basis for it it was okay you're going to do a scan now okay well what does this scan do well i don't know but it doesn't scan so i mean this could just have been the teacher that we were dealing with but there were certain errors of it as well sql injection i think we covered sql injection in one hour and the teacher really didn't know anything about databases at all um, it was one of those things where I was sitting at the front of the class and every time someone asked a question, I was the one answering it because the teacher had absolutely no idea at all. Um, <laughs> pretty much the same when it came to the Linux stuff. He, he actually had the nerve when we came to the Linux module to say, just read through it because I don't know anything about Linux. And that just really annoyed me. I think in in the end, I think I got a 50% refund for the course because it was so badly handled. It's easy peeps. I mean, that kind of leads me on to a good question. I mean, what what sort of what sort of tools do you you couldn't do without at the moment? What sort of tools do you do being being a pen tester? Then? I guess the top ones. I mean, the, the usual stuff. Everyone uses Nmap. A lot of people use Nessus for vulnerability scanning. I mean, I find Metasploit to be a, a really great tool for exploitation. I mean, it's very Windows centric. There's some Linux stuff, some Mac OS X stuff, um, but it's it's really good on the Windows side. If if there's a new patch come out, HD Moore, who writes quite a lot of the, the modules for Metasploit, usually comes out with something pretty quickly, especially with the latest MS080067 um, SMB RPC problems. There's usually an exploit out before anything else. I think the, the only um, exploitation tool that I know that comes out with modules as quickly is probably Immunity Canvas, and that's a pay-for tool. So, so I really like the Metasploit framework. It really does quite a lot of work for us. Um, I, I, on the website, I tend to use Burp Suite. Um, I don't know if you, you've used it. It's a transparent proxy tool. The latest version has a, a limited application scanner, so it finds you know, typical cross-site scripting, um, SQL injection kind of problems. It's, it does what it does. It's a web application tool that finds the low-hanging fruit in your application, so it's not the end-all and be-all, but transparent proxies are a must when you're doing web application testing, and I find Burp Suite really does do the job particularly well. Yeah, I've never, I've, I've never actually come across it yet. Um, we use a, we use lots of different tools for, for web application scanning and stuff like that. But yeah, um, I mean, what sort of, I mean, you touched on it earlier on. What, you know, what what sort of operating systems do 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 you use as as your base to test other systems with? Uh, well, I think it was Ed Scotus who said, um, he gets the question a lot, do you, should I use Windows or should I use Linux? And the answer is always yes. You, know, you should always use both. I mean, unfortunately, in the company I work for, we have to use Windows as a basis because we use full disk encryption that only functions under Windows. So we tend to use a, a standard Windows XP fully patched, obviously, uh, base install, and then everything else runs under VM. And we have VMs um, that run Windows, we have VMs that run Backtrack and uh, a couple of Debian systems. It depends what really works best for you. There's, there's always a, a boot CD, a boot USB or a VM image that will do the job for you. There's things like Samurai, which is a, a specific web application testing framework from the guys in Guardians. I find that's all pretty good as well. It's, it's more focused towards web application testing, whereas Backtrack 
is more of a generic kind of VM or USB boot that does a lot of network and a bit of web application testing. Yeah, I mean, uh, talking to Backtrack, did you know that they've they've released a, a new beta, Backtrack 4 is in beta stage now and out for release at the moment? Yeah, I've been using that in some of the classes I've been running at university lately. It's it's a bit raw, should we say. Um, <laughs> it, a few little little niggly problems. It plays a sound whenever you log in. I'm sure you've, you've experienced that, but there's no volume control, so it plays it at full volume, which can be a little bit embarrassing when you're sitting in the middle of a room and you boot up your USB with Backtrack on it for the first time. Um, with your speakers on full volume so yeah I, I, I learned quickly I really like the new version of Backtrack because you can you do apt-get and install whatever else you need it's, it's a lot better than the Slackware version where you have to download the source I've got no problems installing stuff from source but just being able to do an apt-get is just so much easier yeah especially if you're using it in front of classes and that as well you know you can't beat the power of app to get I'm a bit of an app to get junkie myself to be honest with you yeah I'm not quite sure why but I think the the latest version of Backtrack is still using an old version of MMAP as well it's using 4.62 instead of the latest which is 4.85 beta 2 I think which is a bit of a mystery to me I thought they'd be at least using the the 4.76 version which is um, the version that um, was released after DEFCON, I think. Um, Fyodor did some work on the, the standard ports that are scanned, did a, a lot of scanning of the internet, and found that the standard ports that were used in MMAP needed to be changed. And the new standard ports in 4.7.6 seem to speed up scanning a lot, especially when you're doing standard port scans and standard scene scans. Obviously, another thing that you, you mentioned earlier on, and I just wanted to, to, to kind of have a side note, so to speak, um, did you catch can did you catch the HBR episode with Ken Fallon talking about auto Nessus? It's just to be talking about Nessus. I right? did actually. That that was one of those times where actually I stopped in the car, pulled over, and phoned one of my my colleagues and said, "Auto Nessus, look it up now." Um, <laughs> exactly what I did. Yeah, it, it's it, it's I haven't actually had a chance to play with it yet, but for, it sounds like a really really good product. Um, internally, we use something very very similar, but on a proprietary basis. Um, from my point of view, from what I've heard of Autonesis, the database stuff in Autonesis seems to be a lot better than what we're using at the moment. But um, our proprietary stuff kind of fits in with with various other things that we do internally. So, um, But Autonesis is certainly a, a good project. It's something I'll be keeping an eye on in the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I heard it and I was much the same. I was straight into the lab telling the boys, oh, have you heard of this product? It does this, 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 and this. And you just watch all these ethical hanging students' eyes light up. My God, something easier for us to use, but uh, you know, not hiding, uh, not hiding vulnerabilities between loads of information. You know, like oh, it's an Apache server, and by the way, there is a critical vulnerability, but you're not going to see it at the moment. Well, and Nessus hoping- doesn't find everything. That's the problem. Is it's a lot of people just think that running a Nessus scan is going to bring you up a list of every single thing that's wrong in your web server or your your mail server, and that's it. You're done, and it doesn't. I mean, it's it's a network scanner, so if your port is closed then you're not going to know that your piece of software that runs on the client side is out of date. It's not going to do those client side checks unless you enable uh, Nessus local scans where you give it credentials to log into the machine and then it can check patches on, on Windows and Linux boxes. But no one does it. I mean, very few people I know even know that that kind of feature exists. They just think you run the scan across the network, it tells you everything that's wrong with it, you fix it, and you're finished. I mean, I'm sure you'll agree that, that you know, certainly in pen testing, it's... It's a long process. You, you know, you don't just run a couple of quick tools and say, "Yeah, you're secure." 
you know, you, you know, checks and checks and more checks. It's, you know, it sounds sexy almost pen testing, but you know, there's plenty of times looking at screens and repeating data set and making sure that you can actually guarantee that the, the results that you've got are accurate. And exactly. You don't want to be writing in um, a false negative or a false positive into your penetration test. I mean, it's this isn't a vulnerability scan. If you want to do a vulnerability scan, you do your NMAP, you take your open ports, you do an ESSA scan, you print it out, you write it on your company letterhead, and you give it to the, the client. That's a vulnerability scan at, at the basics. A penetration test is not an ESSA scan. You know, that's that's where you start from, maybe to give you some some idea where to move forward. I've seen a lot of companies that are selling Nessa scans and MAP scans as penetration testing, and that just it just annoys me, especially when we, uh, as a company, we do testing for clients. Um, we go up against a client who says um, we need this and this and this scanned. We say, okay, that'll take 15 days to to scan, to check, to test, to do a complete penetration test of this environment. It will take 15 days. They then come back to us two days later and say, well, this other third company XYZ says they can do it in three days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, and then they'll be wondering why they got hacked at the end of it. The thing it's, is that, that they, they may never even know that that they haven't got their money's worth because education for, for clients is very limited. I mean, I saw a blog post on it recently. I think it was the Snow Dogs blog, I think it was. And they were complaining about lack of um, standardization in penetration testing quotes. And I, I agree with it. People just quote what they think. I mean, I've never had any formal training on how long it takes to do a penetration test. It's one of those things where you just put your finger in the air and, wow, well, probably 10 days. You know, it's, it's a very specific thing quite a lot of the time the customer doesn't give you enough information the customer doesn't know what you're going to come back with if you come back and say it'll take three days they just think it's going to take three days and they think they're going to get their money's worth yeah i mean i think you know we're both agreeing with with pen tests they take as long as they take there's there's, there's really no kind of it depends on what you discover isn't it because it what you discover opens the doors that you go down and you know it, if it really does yeah i mean if, if you run a scan and you find nothing then you have nothing and having nothing in a penetration test doesn't mean you failed it just means you've got nothing i mean that's one of the things quite a lot of penetration testers don't understand is that if you can't write that you got root access on a linux server that doesn't mean you failed as a penetration tester it just means that the server was adequately secured that at this current moment in time, you can't get root access on the server. Um, I find that in order to kind of tie down the timescales better is to set goals for the penetration test. If you just say, I want to do a web app test, there's so many possibilities. You've got cross-site request forgery, cross-site scripting. But if you specifically say, attack our web application and see if you can gain access to our backend database, that's a goal and you can specifically target your attacks on this website to try and gain access to the backend database. So you can specifically say, this area and this goal will take us three days. And if we can't gain access in three days, then that's a, a risk that the company will have to, to accept, is that the average attacker, it should take more than three days to get access to the database. It's one of those things where if I spend five weeks attacking an application, if I find nothing, then if an attacker comes along and invests six weeks, then maybe they're going to find something. The more time you invest, the more you're going to find. Yeah, to, there's to no guarantees. Yeah. There's, there's no guarantees. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the reality of what it is is, is 
you know, a scientific process and going through step by step and step. It's not, you know, pen testing is not a dark art. It's a logical, it's a log, logical step to see what can and can't be done. And I think having set goals is an incredibly important part of, of actually achieving something because you could be, you could take, you, you know, could take your lifetime to test absolutely everything. And by the time you get to the end of it, you don't know, you, you know, it could still be insecure at the other end due to new vulnerabilities. I think you're absolutely right. Though. Uh, set goals is probably an incredibly important thing. Yeah, plus clients at the moment don't seem to understand that this is a, a test at a set point in time. I mean, it could be that two weeks after the test, there's a new vulnerability and your systems are vulnerable. Uh, quite a lot of the time, the client doesn't understand. They say, well, we had a test six months ago. It's like, well, okay, what? so you're only vulnerable to everything that's come out in the last six months. You know, it's, a lot of stuff happens in six months. A lot of stuff happens in six hours in this industry. So y you can never say that your your website or your application is going to be 100% secure, even if you've had a penetration test. It's just going to no, be I, a I little bit better. Who, I can't remember who said it, but I think it was uh, uh, it was in some uh, American Senate talk or something where they basically said, you know, if if a week's a long time in politics, then six years and eon in technology, and you know, and, and even two minutes is a long time in, in our industry. I mean, we work in an industry that uses terms like zero days. You know, that it's kind of one of these these things that you have to keep your eyes open to everything that's happening around you at the time. But the reality of it as well, the people that we're, you know, the people that we're almost fighting against are doing the same thing as we are. They're looking for vulnerabilities every day. They're looking for new technologies. And you know, it's in some ways it's a race to see who can get to the problem first. It's it was always going to go that way. I mean, it it is a business now. I mean, we we work as penetration testers. We get paid to find vulnerabilities, fix them, and protect our systems. The bad guys are getting paid to find vulnerabilities, exploit systems. Um, you know, you send trojans, send spam mail. They're going to earn money from this kind of stuff. And if they're earning money from it, then they're going to invest time and they're going to invest resources. Um, the amount of zero days that have been released this year alone is just crazy. You've got the Excel, you've got the PDF um, exploit currently in the wild that's not been patched yet. You've got um, a Flash um, zero day, I think, that's just been patched by but, uh, Adobe. <coughs> and that's all within the last couple of weeks. And zero days are are very hard to protect against. I mean, there's, there's no way you can protect against a zero day. You can put protections in place that are going to scan communications and look for suspicious activity, suspicious um, shell scripts. But you're never going to be able to you know, save yourself 100% from zero days. It's the whole point. No one knows what they are. But that's how you know, big companies um, are looking now, is to, to put kind of intrusion detection systems in place that do anomaly detection and say, well, we've never seen a PDF that comes through with this kind of JavaScript inserted into it. This could be an attack. Let's quarantine it and have a look at it. But the problem is they don't have anyone looking, anyone educated enough inside the company to look at these um, PDF exploits, for a good example, and say, this is a zero day. We've never seen this before. Um, there's very few people who can pick apart a PDF file and say, there's JavaScript in here that runs shellcode. I mean, I couldn't do it. I mean, I know a little bit about how a PDF fits together thanks to uh, Didier Stevens. And I read a couple of blogs, that, entries that he's written on, on PDF exploits. And, I mean, he knows his stuff, but for every one person who knows their stuff like he does, there's 100,000 people who work in IT who have absolutely no idea how a PDF fits together. Yeah, I mean, I think in reality for companies... <laughs> Security is always low on the budget. I think that is the reality of it. I, I think companies that that have experienced technological-related security breaches 
probably respect the, the amount of time and finance that actually needs to go into making your system secure. I think if you have lots of companies that probably security is the last thing that they think about and they just look at, you know, the wage for that security tester being a drain on resources and, you know, it's not until something bad happens that they turn around and go, well, maybe it was worth having that guy on that did the, you know, that did look at security incidents for us. Well, there's two bits to that. I mean, the, the first part is that if these companies aren't investing in security at the moment, there's every chance they're never even going to notice that they've got hacked. I mean, you're gone are the days of, you know, script kiddies, you log onto your website, deface it and move on to the next website. You're going to notice that. The, the guys who are hacking your website for money aren't just going to log onto your website and deface it. They're going to steal information. They're going to insert JavaScript into your database so it's served up to your clients. And unless you notice that that JavaScript is running on your client machines or even worse, one of your clients tells you, you may never even notice, or it could be months before you notice. And that's an embarrassing situation, especially when your client calls you up and says, are you aware that you're serving malicious code? That's yeah, I mean, not something uh, anyone wants. <laughs> and the, the worst part is forensically going back to look at that because you've probably never logged, because you're not thinking in security that way, you've probably never logged any access or checked any of the log files and actually tracing it back to the date that this happened or you know what way they got in and because because they've not taken security seriously, it's hard to actually find out where the penetration happened. Yeah, exactly. I mean, plus, um, not only are you probably not logging it, but you probably don't have anyone who's uh, experienced in incident handling. So the first thing these guys are going to do when they find they've got a problem is wipe it and restore. I mean, that's it. You've just wiped out all your information. So even if you did want to do a forensic analysis on it, you don't have anyone who can do it. You don't have anyone who can make sure that the image that you get is correctly formed, that you get volatile data from, from memory before you pull the power cord. Most of the time these kind of things go uninvestigated because the people who do the first response don't know exactly what they're doing. How, how important do you think that the, the forensic kind of aspect of, of looking at hacks is for, for a pen test? Then? I mean, it's something I'm really interested personally. I mean, I, I have the problem where I can't do forensic analysis um, in Austria because of language issues. Kind of the first question the lawyer is going to ask you is, do you speak fluent German? The answer is going to be no, and then they're going to throw out the case thinking I've missed something. But it's still something that interests me from a technical point of view. And there's, there's kind of two aspects to forensic analysis. The question is, are you doing it to get a conviction? Do you want to find out who, who infected your machines? Do you want to find out who hacked your systems? Have them arrested and put in prison? In which case, you've got to spend a lot of money. You've got to have the policies in place. You've got to be able to catalogue things as, uh, as evidence in a, in a legal way. Or are you just interested in finding where they got into the system? In which case, it's just a case of looking at the logs, figuring out the entry point, you know, looking at the event logs on the machine and seeing what happened, who was accessing what through the firewall at what time. They're I think the reality different areas. I think the reality of, of you know, if you're having an organization that, that's going to prosecute someone through the use of forensic technology, it would certainly indicate that they've, you know, they've actually thought about the issue before it happens. And I think this is probably a theme that's going to, you know, going to roll through, through, you know, our conversation that companies that think about security before a security incident are so much more prepared when the incident happens than a company that just wakes up one day and finds out that its intellectual property has been stolen. Oh, definitely. But in this day and age, people are, are not going to be investing money. There's a financial crisis going on and they're not going to suddenly sink 100,000 pounds or 100,000 euros into 
what could possibly happen in six months' time. They're, they're just not interested in it. They're trying to keep their bottom line as low as possible. And if they start investing in things that could be, then they're going to have more financial issues. So that's something that worries me in the future is is budgets for security going down. But not only that, but the budget for new security innovations, new IDSs, new you know, incident handling or forensic uh, initiatives inside companies, the money's just not there at the moment. And they, if they can't get the money to set up a, a new forensics um, lab or uh, incident handling policy, then these companies are going to be lost when it comes to you know, new infections, new trojans, or new attacks on their systems. Good security for a company, full stop, is a good base, and a good base means that you have a good. It means that you can go and get, you know, go and get your business, and you're not worrying about it. I mean, but it just amazes me. I mean, it just amazes me the companies that don't think about security and the knock-on effects. I mean, in, in reality, I'm, I suppose I'm kind of referring to the. The, the TK Maxx incident with, you know, unsecured wireless networks and $40 million worth of credit card details being stolen, and it's... Well, that's a great you know, example, especially when you consider that they then had a, a an employee who said um, internally to, to their manager, we're still, this is after the breach, that we're still using blank or weak passwords as administrator passwords, and they were just told that the, the company weren't interested. So when they went public, when this employee went public with the information, TK Maxx fired them. Um, uh, whether or not he was right going public is, is completely incidental but even after this breach TK Maxx still didn't get that they had to be secure it's it's yeah. a scary world it, it just especially when you think about you know they're, they're not going to be the only company that are employing such poor security so and dare I say you know and, and without you know without stoking the fires here for the flames you know it, it's how many other companies are showing complete disregard for the date, people's data? Uh, it just it scares me when you think about, you know, the amount of data that's flying over the internet, over the Wi-Fi, is, you know, that that are people's personal private data that you've trusted to a company and they, they just really don't care. It's it's a scary to think, but I mean, if for every one company that that says we've been breached and we've lost data, how many companies are there that just think? It's it's going to be safe for us not to say anything, and if we get found out, then we'll pay the fine. I mean, that's even if they have to report. I mean, I, I don't know. Has the UK got a, a breach law now? I haven't been keeping up. Uh, I don't up. think so. Exactly. So, I mean, if you get your information stolen by a hacker in the UK, then you're probably never even going to know it, not until your information is used to, to set up a false identity. Um, luckily, we don't in the UK, we don't use social security numbers, but... In, yeah. in the US, there 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 still isn't data breach law set up all over the country. As far as I'm aware, it's a it's a region by region thing. So it, it's very susceptible to to companies just turning around and saying, "Well, if we don't report it, then maybe we'll get fined. If we do report it, then we're going to lose you know five million dollars or ten million or hundred million. So we're better off just not saying a thing." Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of you know I did a lot of root rootkit research and and. What you're what you're talking about is a prime example in that that, that we don't you don't get many out in the wild root kits because companies just don't admit to being kitted when they finally do discover it they don't you know, you know we've been root kitted and do you want to continue your banking with us you know it it I really would hope that you know it's by this disclosure though that that we can get problems fixed you know if you've got a security breach you know. I, my personal feeling is that you have a duty of care to pass that information on. But, you know, you can also understand that, you know, if you're a system admin who who is, you know, you know, wife, two kids at home and you 
perspective of doing the right thing and maybe getting fired or keeping your mouth shut, you know, you can understand why these why people don't come clean and don't tell about what's going on. Equally, you'd expect a company that's had a breach to invest the money in securing themselves so that they're going to be more secure than their competitors who haven't yet been breached. Unfortunately, TK, um, well, TK, TK Maxx um, is the, the exception to the rule, I hope. Um, if they're not, then people just aren't getting the clue. Well, you know, it's the, the fool, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And, I, you know, and I, I really think if TK Maxx got hacked again in the same sort of scale, I don't think they would recover from just basically being, you know, caught out twice with your pants now. No, oh, I'm just glad I never used my credit card in TJ Maxx. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, what, what what do you see as, like, the biggest security threat in the future? It's hard to say. I mean, it comes back down to budget. I mean, the, the biggest security threat I can see at the moment is budget cuts restricting you know, new security innovations. I mean, I've heard of a lot of small companies who have been thinking more about their security, but suddenly during the financial crisis, they're just not interested in investing the money anymore. Um, a lot of companies that are selling uh, security products, security appliances, are seeing a downturn in, in sales because companies are just not moving forward with security. Um, the problem is some of these companies don't understand that you don't need to spend a lot of money in order to be secure. I mean, you can buy a top-of-the-line intrusion detection, intrusion prevention system from IBM and, and be secure, or you can load up a Linux box with Snort and be secure. Um, the, the problem is it's, it's going to be extra work. If you're doing it with a Snort box, you're going to have to upload the rules, you're going to have to know what you're doing, you're going to have to tune it yourself, whereas IBM are going to sell you a box that does it all. Um, I suppose if you're, I suppose if you're thinking about a box like Snort, I, I, you know, I suppose the reality is, is you're probably going to have someone on staff that gave you the idea in the first place, and probably, you know, if if they're looking at Snort, you know, they've probably got a certain level of technical expertise. And I mean, I'm a big one for the technical expertise that you have within a company, actually nurturing that and pushing that forward. You know, if you've got a guy coming up to you saying, you know, why are we spending so much on this when we could be doing it this way, you know. But, you know, my views is, is that the company should nurture that person that's bringing the, the, this idea forward. But, you know, does it happen? No, that's the reality of that. Well, it sometimes does, but the, the thing you have to also consider is, is during the financial crisis, you know, these staff might not stay at the company. It's If you're going to lay off staff and you've got 100 staff, if you just happen to lay off the only one who knew about that product, then you could end up with an intrusion detection system that no one's <laughs> updating and no one understands. And there's no point in having an IDS if no one looks at the logs because well, they, there we the go. logs we, are everything. We've, we've proved our point. Don't fire the security guy exactly, in the yeah, recession. Yeah. Keep, keep us on. More yeah. important. <laughs> um, I mean, what when you go into when you go into a company to do a, a security test, what's kind of like the the thing that you see the most? The one that you go, oh my god, not this vulnerability again. I wish people would learn. What 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 thing do you keep on seeing that really kind of bites you? It, it's sad. I mean, there's there's a. It depends what kind of test you're doing. From the network side, I I can't believe they're still seeing um, landman hashes. I mean, this is, you know, for the last. X years, you know, Landman has been crackable. You've got rainbow tables that'll crack it in, you know, less than a couple of minutes. I mean, it's if you're still using Landman hashes and we can get any kind of hash from the system, then we're going to get the password. I mean, it's if, if you're not using Landman, then okay, we can still do pass the hash attacks, but you know, that's limited in certain aspects. You can't do pass the hash attacks against things like RDP. But if we can actually get your physical clear text password, 
we've got the keys to the kingdom. You know, you can then use that on other systems. On the web app side, it's scary to think that the OWASP Top 10 that was released, I think the latest one was 2007, it's not that much different now than it was in 2007. And it wasn't that much different than it was in 2004. I mean, sure, there's new stuff like cross-site request forgeries popped up. It's always been there, but people are now starting to see it. But you've still got cross-site scripting in so many web applications, and it was there in 2007, and it's still there in 2009, and people aren't fixing it. People are, are looking at the OWASP top 10 and seeing it as a checklist to do tests, but the developers aren't looking at it as a checklist to make sure that they're not vulnerable to these things. And it's the developers who don't seem to be taking this on board and, and improving the products. As penetration testers, I guess we kind of fall down because we go in, we hack the systems, we write a nice report that communicates exactly what's wrong, and then we walk away into the sunset and that's our job done. And unless we're brought on board to mitigate the, the vulnerabilities, we then leave the company to look through the report and do what they need to do to make things better. And quite a lot of the time that involves changing their secure development lifecycle to incorporate this kind of testing into into the lifecycle of a new product. Um, and people just don't get it. Quite a lot of development teams just don't seem to understand. And the ones that do sometimes take offense when you tell them that their systems are vulnerable. <laughs> it's very hard to walk into a meeting room with five developers and tell them that there's a cross-site scripting failure in the, in the site. The immediate response is, okay, and? I was like, well you're not validating your inputs. Like, well, why should we? It gets very adversarial at certain points. It, it's just kind of, it's a simple thing to fix. It should be very, very simple to do. Why is it so hard for us to take the OWASP top 10 and just fix it? You know, just make yeah. sure that your and applications are, aren't vulnerable to these things. And what we're telling you isn't personal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of network administrators take things really personal. When you when you give them a list of passwords and you go, look, these are the passwords that we could get through rainbow tables, and and their passwords there, that's it. They're never going to talk to you again. I mean, it's. <laughs> I, I've done tests before um, for clients where you've walked in and you said, I can't, you know, just just so you know, ten percent of the passwords on your network were one, two, three, four, five, and it's it, it's just scary when the management look at you and go. I can't believe that, but you just know you're going to come back next year, and the password's going to be one two three four five six because that's more secure than one two three four five. They just they yeah, just don't I, get uh, it. One of the one of the pen testing companies that I've spoken to, they um, they don't actually run brute forcing against passwords anymore. They just have a guy that that sits in front of them and goes, "I wonder if it's this," and within two or three hours, he's got an account, uh, and you know. They don't really need to run through brute force, no rainbow tables. They can just literally guess people's passwords. Um, and it still happens. I mean, it's been one of my rants and raves for ages, decent password security. And I recently did talks on, on rainbow tables and landman hashes and, and so on and so forth. And it is one of my pet hates too. Um, I mean, what what was kind of like the, the most memorable security incident that you, you, you've kind of been drawn to in your career? Um, it's been it's been varied, really. Um, I think the, the the biggest point in my career so far was uh, finding a vulnerability in in Tipper three, which is a, a content management system, which is PHP based. Um, I'd attended a couple of presentations at a local security conference where they were touting how incredibly secure Tipper three was, um, and I was doing a, a penetration test where we had set goals. To, to try and um, do cross-site scripting or attack users. And Tipper 3 was pretty good. Um, and I, I didn't really want to leave it as it was, kind of, you know, yeah, we've tested, it seems pretty secure. So I kind of started looking at the code and 
and came across a section where they they use an encryption key to prevent you from from changing certain details in the URL basically puts an MD5 value of the URL at the end so you can't change any of the values um, so I had a quick look at how they use the encryption key to create the MD5 value and it turns out that it's a 96-bit long encryption key seems pretty unbrute forcible but if you look closely at the code you can see that it creates an MD5 of the millisecond value of when the server was installed which could only be a thousand possibilities it then does an md5 of that md5 and sticks it together and then repeats the process so you get a 96 bit long key so even though it looks very impressive there's still only a thousand possibilities um so you know this this was kind of shocking to me it was the first time i could actually write into a penetration testing report that there's a vulnerability in this and at present there's no patch for it because i've only just found it and that was it was an interesting moment. I had to wait three months for the Tipper 3 guys to, to patch it and release, which, um, which they did at the end of January this year. So and that, that was kind of a defining moment for me, the first time I've actually found something. It takes me back to the, the days before, you know, I'm showing my age here, but the days before the internet told you how to do everything. You know, Nowadays, if you want to do something, you just search on the web and there's an instruction sheet that tells you how to do it. Um, when I started, I was using DOS 6.2, DOS 5, uh, Windows 3.11, Windows 3.1, and there was almost no internet. You know, there, there was a couple of a couple of sites, but you couldn't log on to the internet and find a description of you know how INI files are configured. You just had to go in there and break it and see how it works. And that kind of took me back to to that day day and age where you're flying without an instruction sheet. There's no one that tells you if you get stuck what the next step is. If you don't find what the next step is, then that's it. There's no next step. And, and that, for me, was was really exciting. Am I right in thinking that you've talked a bit about this on your blog as well? Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I released kind of uh, a tool that, that automates it, um, but mostly for testing purposes. I mean, I, I wanted to write a tool in Python. I haven't written anything in Python. And I thought, well, if I'm going to write my first tool in Python, I don't want it to be a Hello World program. <laughs> no, no offense to Hello World programs, but I wanted it to be something a bit, a bit more impressive. So my first... Um, Python program calculates MD5 hashes and um, you know, grabs the URL from from the input and splits it up. And I, I'm quite happy with it. I mean, it's not clean, it's not beautiful, but it's my first Python program. Um, I did a short video as well on Vimeo, and that's on my blog as well. So it kind of runs you through on the demo site how you can you know, exploit this encryption key. It's it's not one of those major flaws where you think encryption key great. I can get access to all the background data and you know attack the the server. But it was enough for me to think it's a vulnerability. So, <laughs> um, what's the what's the web address for your blog? It's www.c22.cc. Okay. Um, I mean. Is there any, what sort of plans do you have in the future? You're going to, you know, keep on doing what you're doing at the moment or are you, you looking to get further training and move forward? Uh, anything that you, you fancy doing in the community sort of stuff? I mean, what, what, what are your future plans, Chris? Well, it's been a big year for me. I mean, I've, I've only been working as a penetration tester full time since last March. So it's, it's, it's a year now for me. But in the last year, I've, you know, got a full time job as a penetration tester. I've learned so much. Um, I think I've written three articles now for a couple of magazines, Hacking Nine magazine and, and one for Linux magazine. Um, 
I finally got over my fear of doing presentations by doing a presentation at a local security conference. Um, nothing, nothing highly technical, but uh, enough for me to, to be able to say that I can stand up in front of 50 people and talk about something without fainting. Um, so that's I've, I've done a lot in the last year, and I'm, I'm moving forward now by doing some small university classes on exploitation. Metasploit MMAP, some some simple stuff. Moving more into kind of advanced Metasploit with MSF payload and things like that. Um, in the next year, my main project really is to to do more training. Uh, I really I think that I learn more by doing training than I do by um, you know, by actually running a training class than by reading a book. I mean, I've learned more about Metasploit in the planning for my Metasploit class than I had in the last three years of using Metasploit. It's one of those things yeah, where it it really does hold true. If you can't, if you teach it, you learn it. Yeah, I mean, I I can't, you know, I I can't have none but praise for what you're saying there. I mean, I've learned so much more by by doing you know talks and presentations on subjects and doing HPR episodes as well because. You know, if you've got to go, and it almost gives you a legitimate reason to invest huge amounts of your own personal time into to, to, to learning something inside out. Well, that's uh, what it's all about in in this industry. If you think that you can, if you're just in standard IT, if you're doing server support or desktop support, you could spend three or four hours a day learning something new every day. If you're doing security, you have to live it. You, it sounds cliched, but I mean, I, I've taken a week off once. Um, where I haven't read anything, I haven't read any blogs, I haven't read any news, I just haven't kept up to date with anything. You come back and you've got 200 blog entries to read and you're just you're so far behind that you have to spend the whole weekend reading up on things that, that you didn't read before. It's, it really is a full-time job and then another full-time job just to keep up to date with these things. I recently had some time off with my uh, birth of my second daughter and you know, when I came back to to looking at emails and blogs, you know, it took me the best part of three days to get through university emails and Linux Society emails and personal emails and the, the 600 blog entries that, you know, you had to go and read and it's, oh, yeah. sometimes you're scared about taking the time off. Like, it really has to be a passion. I mean, you know, my idea of a holiday is flying to the Netherlands to go to a hacking conference. I mean, it's, um, I, I find it fun and if you don't find it fun, then this isn't a nine to five job. I mean, if if you want a nine to five job, security is probably not the direction you want to be going in. So, what sort of what what's your top tips for people wanting to get into ethical hacking? Then, um, comes back to what we were talking about earlier: is is you really have to understand the the underlying stuff. I mean, if you run a, an MMAP scan, you really need to know what it's doing. You you don't just need to know what the syntax is. So, you can run a, a ping scan of your local subnet. You need to know that if you're running a ping scan of a local subnet that it won't actually send a ping packet, it'll use ARP because it's on a local subnet and it's quicker. So if you don't know how to do an attack without the tool, then you shouldn't be using the tool. I mean, the tool is great for automating things. There's thousands of tools in Metasploit, thousands of tools on, online where you can download and and quickly you know, launch attacks, do checks and, and run tests on systems. But if you don't know why it works, how it works, and, and the underlying features of the product, 